if you think of it, the story of the Magi could be the perfect plot for a, sus- a suspense movie. You know, you got this very delicate balance of power in Jerusalem with this very unstable king, and the only thing you need to unleash the storm is these strangers coming and saying, where's the new king that has been born? And then these new, newly, new com- newcomers are sent to find the child unknowing or ignorant that they are leading the way uh, for the king to kill the child. Well, it's a, an amazing plot for a thriller, if you want. But it doesn't end with a, you know, a massacre in Herod's palace or anything like that or any sort of action movie, but rather we see how God has a long-term view of things, and he does intervene to save the child, obviously, to save his son, but has broader plans in mind that, sim- that simply an immediate revenge or a sort of political arrangement for the moment. But above all things, the, the, this story, the story of the Magi coming to Jerusalem, it's, I think it's a moral story. It's a comparison of two ways of exercising power and, and of viewing human talents. The power of a king like Herod, who is a self-serving monarch who seeks to stay in power at all costs. And the power of these sages from the far east, further east, who are aware of their preeminence and, and power and knowledge, but they see their own authority as something that needs to be directed towards God. And they're in a sort of pilgrimage to find God. You know, the, the cruelty of Herod became proverbial in the ancient world. He, he ruthlessly killed anybody he suspected was plotting against him. And there, were, there was a long list for him. Six people in his immediate family. Herod killed his wife, Mariamme. He killed three of his sons. When he was deceived by the Magi, he ended up slaughtering the, 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 you know, the little chi- children in Bethlehem, in all that area. And it's funny how human nature works. In spite of doing all these things that would gain him universal rejection and hatred, he still wanted to be loved and admired by people, right? And so he, he wanted to be known as a great builder. In fact, Herod left behind some of the great you know, construction projects in, 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 in Israel. For example, the, the city of Neo Caesarea in the sea and the, the, the harbor, and the second temple, the temple in which Jesus walked, was built by Herod. And then also suspecting that nobody would mourn his death, he planned that after, shortly after dying, all these you know, leading figures of, East, of Jerusalem should be killed so that at least there would be some mourning after his death. Well, Herod ended up dying a very painful and slow death, and, and as he suspected, he was not missed. And luckily, nobody carried out his plan of executing all these other people close to him. Well, if you look at, now we sit back and look at this, we might think that the conclusion from the Bible is that power always corrupts. That any sort of wealth and talent and power is always dangerous to handle. And that's, it's risky, obviously. But that's not the lesson, I think. And that's where the Magi are introduced as a sign that also human talent and power and prestige, rightly used, can lead to God. I can use my talents and my skills and my connections and my knowledge in a way that will lead me on a quest for God. And that's what the Magi did. 
Now, but why, why is Herod's example included in the gospel? What is the lesson for us? I think none of us are tempted to you know, start killing people. Uh, but I, I would say that Herod and maybe the scribes next to him are an example and a warning of what a compartmentalized faith may look like. You know, a faith that, it, that you put in a little box and, and put God in there and he's, you know, put it neatly in a, side of, on a, on a sort of sideline of your life. And he doesn't bother, right? I think that's, that's the risk. That's what really began sinking Herod in a, in a deeper and deeper pit all the time. He called himself a Jew. He had scribes in his court. But his, his life was not shaped by religion, by faith. He, was simply, he would just keep the external trappings of religion, if you want. What are the symptoms of a faith that is compartmentalized? Well, the first one is clear in the case of Herod that you perceive God as a threat to your well-being. If I compartmentalize my faith, when things are going well in my life, I start to feel that God is coming as an invader. He's coming to take away, to chip away my, my enjoyment of things, my freedom of action. So I'd rather keep him back in the box where he belongs. A second symptom is what happens when things start going south, uh, when I'm not doing so well. And that's uh, the symptom is feeling despair and loneliness because, you know, if I confine God to a box and I, I sort of create this domesticated God that is not a real God, uh, he cannot save me when I am, I am in need. You know, if religion be, becomes in my mind a sort of social construct that a group of people have devised to protect their interests, well, you know, I cannot really appeal to that set of ideas when I'm in danger. I need to go to a God that is alive and is real, that God cannot save me. And the third sign of a compartmentalized faith is that religion becomes dull, becomes boring, cannot relate to an unreal God, to an idea, you know. so it's not surprising that a compartmentalized faith paves the way for a complete abandonment of religion. I remember many years ago in, in my former parish, I met this, this man that I, I called him Nick for the purpose of his homily. He, he had a, a very surprising path back to God. He did live a sort of lukewarm Catholic faith. He, he grew up Catholic that he wasn't practicing anymore and went to you know, weddings and mass occasionally, maybe Christmas, Easter, he ended up in Peace Corps in Northern Africa, and he was feeling really low. It was really a tough time, a tough year for him. Basically, he had not much to do, just stay in this base, watch Netflix for hours in a row and all these episodes. And finally, he said, you know, I need to, I need to do something. I, I'm really, really low right now. I need to pray. This thought came to his mind. So he decided, I will pray. So he stopped watching, paused the video, and then went to his knees, started to pray, and said, oh, I can pull out this reading. He had recently been to the, his sister's wedding and read the second reading. So he pulled out the reading, 1 Corinthians 13, the well-known passage, and he, be, he recited that. And that brought some peace to him, and I felt really good after that. So I, okay, f- finished my prayer, went back to my show and resumed the playing, and a minute into it, this character in the show recited exactly the same passage, he was speechless, and he said, well, okay, 
God, I'm not dumb. This is a clear sign. Well, I, I think I need to take, start taking my faith much more seriously. So he decided when I go back to, to the U.S., I would start praying and practicing my faith. So he went back to Portland, Oregon, and he was praying, asking God, lead me to a good community. And also he was trying to find someone to date. So he was looking at a Catholic match and saw this girl he really liked and messaged her. And the, ne- the next day he went to see if there was a response. And the, not only there was no response, but the profile of the girl had disappeared. <laughs> and he says, that's not a good sign. So he says, well, she says he was Catholic in Portland. So I'll, try, I'll, try, I'll start going to different Catholic churches. And I'm sure I'm, I'm fi- I'll find her somewhere. So after trying four or five, he went, came to my parish, and there she was. She found, he found the girl he was looking for, and right when he went, like three different people said to him, oh, you're new here. Have you been to Alpha? And then he says, I was immediately sucked into this Catholic community of young people, which was amazing and so, and so transforming for my life. Well, so Nick had a lot of signs in, in his path to to faith, to reconnect with God and to discover a deeper faith. But also notice that he was willing to follow the signs. He, he prayed. He said, well, when I go back to this, I'll, I'll t- take my faith seriously. I began to look for a Catholic community. He did follow the cues from, from God. So let me conclude with a few practical things, a few takeaways. The first one is this. The message from Epiphany is, we need to avoid compartmentalizing our faith. If you sense that your faith is confined to a little narrow area in your life, you know, when I pray in this moment or to my Sunday Mass obligation, or, but it's not really into my entire life, well, find ways to overcome that compartmentalization, if I can say so, uh, to bring your connection with God to be more real 24-7, like a real profound relationship with someone who guides you. Maybe join a Bible study or look for some good resource, some good book that you can read. Start to pray more habitually. Or maybe try the Alpha Course. This is a great resource. We'll be putting this on starting on Tuesdays, January 21st. So it's in th- uh, Tuesday evenings. And it's a great way to grow in faith with other young people. Well, this is just one thing. There are many ways in which you can seek to, you know, expand your faith life. The second thing to think about or take away is think about your different talents and what's the role they are playing in your life. Are there talents that maybe are becoming an obstacle to follow God? Are you taking them in a way that, you know, if I allow God into my life, this, my career, my plan, my relationships will diminish in some way? Are you Am I taking maybe the Herod attitude with my talents? God is a sort of invader that comes to take away the fun and the best of my life. Or am I taking those talents as the Magi did, as a sort of step to walk towards Christ? You know, we don't have to see our talents as, or God as inimical to our talents and, and possibilities. Our talents don't have to be an obstacle. It's, in our, it's our decision, how we view those. And we, I think the message is clear in the gospel. When God comes, he doesn't take away anything really good. He, and on the contrary, he empowers us. He lifts us up. He gives us peace. He liberates us. And the final takeaway is this question. 
has God been sowing signs of his presence in your life lately? Has the Lord been sending signs that he's seeking you out, that he's inviting you? Now, usually God doesn't enter ramming the front door of our house. He scatters subtle signs along the way, and we need kind of detective eyes to discover them. You know, that's the way in which the star guided the Magi. In the case of Nick, I think he was, the star was this girl that eventually became now his wife. But the way to overcome a compartmentalized faith is to start detecting those signs that come from God and, and follow them wherever they may lead us. So may we pray. Lord God, you know all things and you know my circumstances and you know every corner of my soul. I want to let you in, Lord. I want to give you the freedom to guide me, to guide my steps. So speak to me. Give me the ability to perceive the signs that you're placing before me. Above all, Lord, give me the grace of trusting you and following your lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.